So I know the will of God for your life. Isn't that amazing? You, you might be like, I don't know what the will of God for my life is. How does he know the will of God for my life? I know the will of God for your life. Uh, he actually wrote it in his word. Many of us here, particularly if we're uh, Christians, would say, yeah, I want to know the will of God for my life. I really want to know the will of God for my life. And then quite often we think, I don't know what the will of God for my life is. I'm just here. And this is what's going on. What should, what should I be doing? And if I only knew it, then I'd do it. Well, I know the will of God for your life. We tend to associate the will of God with making big moves. Where are we going to live? Where are we going to work? Um, uh, what church are we going to go to? Um, what are we going to study? Who are we going to do these things with? If only God would tell us, then I would know his will for my life. And, and often in those moments, we will pray desperately, God, show me your will. Please guide me. And then someone comes along and says, I know the will of God for your life. And we're all ears. And also slightly suspicious. Because I... He can't know where I'm supposed to live. What's going on? Well, is this a trap? Yes, it kind of is. Because the will of God for your life may not be what you're really focusing on, but it's what God wants you to focus on. And he's going to tell you what that is in a Bible passage that we're looking at today. And then you're going to know it. And then you're going to think, oh, well, it'd be good to feel like I'm living in the right place and doing the right job and with the right people and all those kind of things. But, oh, this is the will of God for my life. So let's see, we're going to open up uh, the Bible and read from uh, Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 4, the first eight verses of that. Finally then, brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his body in holiness and honour, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother or sister in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness." Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This is the word of God. Why don't we pray? Lord, you're speaking to us. You speak to us through your word. And, uh, and whether we know you and love you and are trying to follow you, or whether we're still trying to work this whole thing out, I'm not sure even if you exist. God, I pray you'd give all of us here today ears to hear what you're wanting to say. And eyes to see you. And God, I pray you just help me with my physical imperfections and, and just the, the limitations of human speech and thought and time and everything. God, would you by your Holy Spirit work amongst all of us, each one of us, right now for your glory. Amen. Amen. So that's the will of God for your life. Your sanctification. That's the answer, which leads maybe to another question. What does sanctification mean? Well, it basically means to grow in holiness. And this idea of holiness runs through the passage that we just read. You, may, you won't have noticed it when it said sanctification, but Paul talks about holiness two other times, and he talks about the Holy Spirit as well. So we're getting closer to a, an, an answer to a question that doesn't have some more questions that follow it, but we've got another question if we're talking about holiness. What's holiness? Most of us would think, well, holiness, that means kind of moral living. And it, it does kind of mean that. 
But it means a lot more than that as well. And uh, so I want us to explore that. Paul was a Jew. And so uh, well, uh, for us, the Old Testament, they were the scriptures, uh, the word of God that he grew up with. And that's where God showed him what holiness meant. And we're going to uh, think about that. We're going to try and understand that through a couple of pictures, uh, one of a pen and one of a tent, um, in order to understand a bit of uh, what this means. And then we'll look at how we then apply that to our lives. So holiness in the Old Testament, it means, it means to be set apart, to be separated. Um, and not like kind of twins separated at birth, but they're always the same really. Um, no, there's a, there's a separateness, a, 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 an entire divide between the two categories. Uh, above all, God is holy. God is said to be holy, holy, holy. In the Bible, when they repeat things, that, that's like very, 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 and it's adding emphasis. And God is holy, holy, holy. He is not top of the league table. He is in an entirely different category, all by himself. And he's not just different. He is gloriously different. He is supremely different in all things. So there may be other things that are good and true and beautiful and powerful, but God is the source of all goodness and the source of all truth and the source of all beauty and the source of all power. And everything that is like that is only like that because he made it. And so he is categorically different to all other things. And so he is holy. The Old Testament tells us that he sometimes uh, chooses particular things and people and he makes them his own. He chooses them to be separate. He makes them holy. And by doing so, he changes their identity. He changes their value. He changes their purpose. Now, not all of these things are going on with the pen that I want to talk to you about, but kind of some of them are. And I hope he's going to point us in the right direction. When people get married in Scotland, um, the person conducting their wedding and the two of them and two other witnesses have to sign a legal document called a marriage schedule. And that's the bit when in the eyes of the law, they become truly married. And it's usually the person conducting the wedding who provides the pen uh, by which the schedule must be signed. And there's one important thing about uh, that pen. It must be a black fountain pen because you're not allowed to use biro uh, or crayon or anything like that. People are really fussy. Uh, you have to use a black fountain pen. Well, this is a fountain pen uh, with black ink in it. Who would not want to use such a beautiful pen like this? to have their marriage schedule signed. Or if you're the guy you know, running the wedding, who's, yeah, that's a lovely pen. I'd love to use that to help people get married. Well, I'll tell you two people who don't want to use that pen, Chris Rawson and Dan Hudson. To the leaders here, other guys uh, who like me uh, are involved in uh, running uh, weddings. This is the pen that I use uh, when I'm conducting a wedding service. And they knew that I had a pen. They didn't have a pen. So they said, hey, um, can, I, can I borrow your pen? I'm doing this wedding. Can I borrow your pen? I was like, okay, yes with a but. You need to know some things about this pen. It's gold-plated, and when it was bought in 1998, it cost £48, which is a lot more than most pens. And I imagine it must be, therefore, worth a bit more now. Moreover, it was an 18th birthday present to me from my late father, and Deb and I used it to sign our wedding schedule. This pen is set apart for me, and both Dan and Chris responded accordingly by immediately saying, I do not want to touch that pen, <laughs> let alone be responsible for it on a day when I'm thinking about a lot of other things. And do you know what? I treat it differently as well. I've still got its receipt, which is true for no other pen I own. 
it is kept in its original box. It's not in the jumble of all the pens that households somehow accumulate over time. You know, there's a place where the pens are. This pen is not with those pens. I don't use it for common tasks. If I'm like, I just need to write a shopping list or a note or something like that. I don't like, where's that pen? No. This pen comes out for special occasions. It's used for unique and special moments. Its identity and its purpose and its value have been defined for it. And actually for anyone else who comes in contact with it. And that's part of what holiness is about. Now if we wanted to make this pen picture even more kind of gospel shaped. It wouldn't have started with a brand new, beautiful, valuable pen like that. It would have been one that was chewed and broken and empty of ink. And then God came along and made it glorious and beautiful. But that's, that's part of what's happening when God chooses a people. He makes them into something different, something valuable and precious. So that's the pen picture. Now let's use an image that you will actually find in the Bible. Uh, which is that of a tent, like this one. Not really much like this one, but kind of like this one. This is the closest I've got to a a tent that I was prepared to erect in like 30 seconds. When God chose Israel to be his special people, he made them holy. That's, That's the pen idea. And what he did is that having made them holy, he said, you need to make me a tent and I'm going to dwell in that tent in the midst of you. Now, of course, God's not limited by space and time. He's at work everywhere. Uh, He could go anywhere and do anything that he likes. But he was going to make his presence known uniquely in this tent, which was pitched right in the middle of his people. Uh, So on the screen, you see a a drawing of what it more looked like. It's a kind of cross-section, so it wasn't like an open-air tent. Um, They've just kind of like cut it uh, through. And and so basically, you have this fenced-off area, and and certain people at certain times go into the fenced-off area, and then there was the tent... And you go into the tent and you're in what's called the holy place. And then if you go past that into the very heart, there's where the presence of God dwells. It's called the most holy place. Geographically, it was the one place on all the earth and amongst all the nations where God made himself known. And spiritually, It meant that the people amongst whom he dwelt had a special calling to obey God and to show him through their lives. So there was two places in which this nation would demonstrate the glory of God. One would be because they had this tent, but the other way was the manner in which they lived. And because they belonged to God, that was their calling. Now, eventually the tent was replaced with a temple. And obviously your tent, you can move it around. This was meant to. And a temple, you can't move around. But the presence of God was never meant to stay only in that place. It's always been uh, the intention of God. And you see it uh, throughout the Old Testament. There are hints and then promises that God's intention is outwards. The expansion is his plan. Because he, want, he didn't just want there to be a place on earth. So here's the place. The holiness is in here. And then everywhere else in the world is an absolute mess. That was true. But God's plan was that from here, Everywhere would be made holy again, just as it originally was, and he is, as he always intended it to be. And so the New Testament takes this idea and begins its completion. Because what happens at Christmas? 
you probably missed this, but when, if, if John, the first chapter of John's gospel is read, we say, um, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word at that point is tabernacled. And tabernacled is one of those Bible words which basically means tent. And so God took on flesh, a tent of flesh, and Jesus dwelt among us. And then when he died, again, there's one of those things that the, uh, I think Matthew's gospel refers to it. You think, I don't really know what that means. But it says that there's, a, there's a, a massive curtain in the temple between the rest of the world and the most holy place. And when Jesus died, giving his life for our sins, that we might be reconciled to God, something happens to that curtain. It is torn from top to bottom because the Lord is breaking out into all the earth. God chooses people. Jesus chooses people. He tells them, follow me, and they do so. But at that point, they aren't just, they, they aren't just people who, who add a new activity to their life. They become something different. Uh, we would call them disciples or followers of Jesus. But what happens is that they are made holy. They now belong to God. They respond to him. And Jesus says, and because you're holy, I'm going to fill you with my Holy Spirit. And then what does he say at the end of Matthew's gospel? He says, Go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. Tents are to be pitched everywhere. It's no longer just to be one in one place, but all over the world, there are to be individual believers and gathered communities, churches, where the presence of God is. If this illustration was to continue successfully, I would want this tent to grow yet to expand until it filled this entire room. I obviously cannot do that. But that is what the Bible talks about, the tent of the presence of God doing. So unlike, again, unlike this tent, um, it, it's obviously the best I've got. It's not great. Uh, it's not a cube. You know, well, how many tents are cubes? Well, one was. The most holy place was a cuboid. Its width and length and depth were the same. And then in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, Heaven comes to earth as a new city and it's enormous. It's absolutely massive. It's, it's like 12,000 stadia. That, that's the measurement, which basically means really big. Uh, 12 is the number of completion in the Bible. So it's like, it's really big and really done. And it was also kind of approximately the size of the known world. If you would say, how big is the world? Then people say, oh, it's probably about 12,000 stadia. So it's like that, but it isn't just like that. It's like that. And like that, it's 12,000 times 12,000 times 12,000. And all the world, therefore, becomes the holy place, the dwelling of God. And now, eventually, we get to our explanation of sanctification. Because just as there's meant to be a geographical expansion of holy people, more and more and more of them all over the world, so there is meant to be spiritual expansion within every one of those people that they become more and more and more like Jesus. They become more and more holy. Christians, uh, 1 Corinthians 3 verse 16 tells us, Christians are the temple of God now. We are where he dwells and his influence on us is meant to increase and increase and increase until we become just like him. This is his intention for everything. He is going to fill the world with himself and so he's going to fill his people with himself. And so that means they need to live like he lives. 
And this process is called sanctification, learning to obey God and not just follow our own preferences, learning to make choices that are, for example, less and less selfish, becoming more loving and joyful and peaceful and patient and kind and good and faithful and gentle and self-controlled. Now, lots of the things that happen in the life of a Christian uh, in terms of what we call the salvation process, God does all by himself. So he chooses people before time began. He calls them. Uh, he, uh, he renews them. He makes them new creations so that when they hear the gospel, they believe it. Uh, when they believe it, uh, he then gives them all the, all the righteousness of Jesus as they become as legally uh, right with God as Jesus is. And he adopts them into, their, into his family fully, completely, 100%. And then when they die or Jesus comes back, whichever happens first, they will be made glorious and God will do that. And so that kind of sanctification process, getting more and more and more like Jesus, will be finished utterly, 100%. And God does that. So he does the final thing. He does all the things that come up to it, basically all by himself. Sanctification is the part of the process where we work with him. Sanctification doesn't just happen. There's other things God does, but this is the part where we play, where we are to respond to him and cooperate with him so that we would grow more like him. So sanctification, if you're a Christian, should be happening in your life right now. It's the will of God for your life. So that quite obviously raises some questions for us, doesn't it? Raises some questions for you. Is it happening? Are you becoming more like Jesus? Do you recognise that your identity is one who is, is that you are one who has been chosen and made holy by God? That you no longer belong to yourselves, that it's not up to you. Your agenda is no longer set by you, but set by God. Are we accepting his definitions of what love and goodness are? Are we cooperating with his Holy Spirit to become more like Jesus? Are we more like him? If you, you, know, you think back to a year ago, you think, Am I more or less like Jesus now than I was then? Or 10 years ago? Or whenever you first became a Christian? You should be able to, you should be able to notice a difference. Sanctification applies to all areas of our life because God is Lord of all. And so all the different kinds of relationships we have, all the different roles that we're given, all the experiences we have, the good ones and the bad ones, just the boring ones that we never really uh, remember, all our words, all our deeds, all our thoughts. God uses all these things to grow faith and love and holiness, to make us more like Jesus if we will respond to him. And that word that Karen brought was just so helpful, wasn't it? Are we there yet? No. But God is at work right now, right now in you. He's doing it in every area of your life. But Paul chooses to focus on just one area in today's passage. And so that's what we will focus in on as well. And that is sex. It says, for the will, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honour, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Now, it shouldn't surprise us that Paul would choose this area, really, should it? Because if God's going to have control of our whole lives and everything about us, and for most people, uh, either their sexual identity or their sex drives or uh, that kind of, it's a big part of their life. So wouldn't it be weird if God had, I've got no interest in that. No, God's Lord of all. And so sex is part of that. And again, all human societies make a huge deal about sex. 
And so it should, uh, it should come under the lordship of Jesus in the life of a Christian. So again, we need a definition. So Paul says, abstain from sexual immorality. So like, okay, what's sexual immorality? Well, the clearest explanation, uh, which you get if you read through Paul's letters, you read through Jesus' teaching, you read through the whole of God's word, is that sexual immorality means anything that is not either living uh, as a celibate single or as a faithfully heterosexually married person. Those are the... Those are the two callings God gives people to live in sexually. Anything out with that, the Bible defines as sexual immorality. Wasn't expecting too many amens or hallelujahs at that point. Because maybe you agree with what God's word says. You're like, yeah, that is right. But you're just struggling to live that way yourself. It's really hard. You're like, I know that's true, but it just doesn't look true in my life at all. Or maybe you, you agree and you're experiencing a, a, a measure of, uh, of that tallying with your life. You're like, yes, I agree. And actually my life looks like it agrees. But if I told the people I work with that this is what I think, and just all the time, so like this week, uh, my, my internet browser got updated. And it's like, hey, great news. We're even better at hiding the things you've searched for. Like, what do you mean by that? And then I was just reading something on the news, on a news website, and it's like, most read this week, some, I don't know, it's a just disgusting thing about someone's sex life that is a feature of the newspaper. Like, people, they just like finding people who the most weird things are happening in their sex lives, and so they're like, this is an important feature for our news. And, and you know that. So even if you know that this is what sexual immorality is, you're like, oh, if I told anyone else, they'd go, they would just think, I don't know what they think. Or maybe you disagree what I've just said, with what I've just said, and you didn't realise this was one of those churches. And now you're not sure what to think. Or you're like, what does this mean for my life? What does it mean for who God is? If this is true about God, what does that mean? Well, I'm aware that I have very quickly said some very complicated and some very life-affecting things. And I just do not have the time to explain to you why this is the good will of God today. But you need to be convinced of it. And so if you're here and you're like, I just don't like this. I'm not sure it's right. Let me just say, I've been trying to focus on the why of sanctification in general. And I want to point you to some other places you can go to get some help on getting this a bit clearer. So um, there will be some links uh, that are going out in the notes for small groups, which if you're a small group leader, they'll arrive in your inbox at midday. Uh, They'll be on our website on Tuesday. Um, so start of last year, we did an eight-week preaching series called Birds and Bees and Massive Questions. And this was all about um, uh, sex and sexual morality and how we live as God's people. And it goes into a lot more detail on all those different things. So there's that that you can look at. Uh, if you'd just like to hear someone else's voice from a different church, um, there's a talk by a guy called Andrew Wilson called Why Would God Care Who I Sleep With? It's really good. I'd recommend that you uh, have a listen to that. Um, there's a website by an organisation, called. Uh, they're called Living Out. Uh, they're Christians who experience same-sex attraction, uh, but they're living according to what they believe the Bible teaches, which we would agree with. And so there's loads of resources on how you can do that and why you would want to do that and, and how actually it is good. 
And then if you want to do some more uh, reading about uh, just how all different kinds of areas of, about this, uh, a friend of mine called Andrew Bunt, he's a great uh, young theologian and teacher, also experiences same-sex attraction himself, and he's put together a, a helpful and very long list of recommended resources on sexuality on the Think Theology website. And it's like, uh, here's some great stuff about singleness, here's some great stuff about marriage, here's some great stuff about why our culture is like it is at the moment when it wasn't like this before and other cultures aren't as well. And so wherever you are in this understanding, there'll be something there that can help you because I don't want you just to be like, well, I think it's that, but I don't know why and I don't like it. That's, that's not what we want. We want you to be convinced biblically. And, and again, if, if this, is, this is really hard for you, really struggling with this, don't leave today without speaking to someone about it. Even just to say, I didn't like that at all. And I can't talk about it right now, but I just, I'm just telling you so that at some point later we can have, have a chat. Uh, if you're a student, maybe you want to speak to one of the student team leaders, Nathaniel or Rachel or Carrie. Uh, if you're in small groups, speak to a small group leader maybe, or come speak to myself or someone. Obviously, you can. Uh, I will be speaking to other people about other things at the end of this service. So, you know, if, if you're just like, I don't want to speak in person now, send me an email, luke at kingschurchedinburgh.org. But we want to listen to you and we want to help. And again, Karen's word, this is a journey. This is something for you to, to grow into and to understand and be convinced of. So let's finish with four points that will help us uh, to become sanctified. God wants this in our life. Uh, he wants it in all areas of our life. He wants it particularly uh, in regards to sexuality. So let's see four things that Paul says. Firstly, we've said it already, we're going to say it again. It is God's will. He really does want us to be clear on this. I don't know if you noticed it. Paul says, uh, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus how you ought to walk and please God. The instructions we gave you through Jesus Christ. This is the will of God that you abstain from sexual immorality. For God has called us. The Lord is the Lord is an avenger in all these things. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God. Do you get what Paul's saying here? Paul's a very confident guy. He doesn't mind saying, I've worked this out and here it is. But he's not doing that here, is he? He's saying, this is God's word. This isn't my idea. This is what God has revealed and shown to us. This is God's will for your life. I've just said, I've given you a whole load of opportunities and resources just then to explore this for yourself, to work it through, because I want you to be properly convinced. But I kind of, I just hope you'll see, there's really no scope for negotiation here. You can't believe that this is God's word and not believe that this is God's will. You really have to say the Bible is wrong to, to come to that conclusion, I think. I mean, if you're honest about it. So we need to know that. And those of us who are, who are yes, yes, amen, now help me live that way. You need to know the same thing, that this is God's will for your life. When temptation's coming into us and our thought processes are going all over the place and everything starts to turn around, we start to rationalise things that in the cold light of day we'd never rationalise. But in the moment we're like, oh yeah, but kind of maybe this, oh maybe I can, yeah, but this could be all right. No, this is the will of God for your life. It's really clear so that when that moment happens of kind of confusion and I'm not sure and this and this and this, no, it's here in black and white so that you can be clear about it. And again, when everyone around us seems to think something different and you're like, can it really, do, do we really have to keep believing this? Does it, can this not just change with culture and preference? Because it's really hard. I might lose my job over this. I might lose my friendships over this. This is the will of God for your life. It is a rock that you can build your house on. 
and a rock that you can hold on to even in the storms. God does not change. Again, Aimide's word, wasn't that helpful? Go and argue to his face. Be held by him and say, this is so hard for me. It might be hard for me professionally or hard for me emotionally. It might be, you might think, if this is true, I'm not sure I can ever be happy. Go and argue to his face. Tell him that with his father's arms around you that he might hold on to you still. And if it's God's will, you can be sure that God will be working to achieve it, which gives us huge hope. God isn't like, I'm gonna give you some things to do. Off you go, see you later. God is always at work to to, to fulfil his will. Again, Izzy brought Romans 8, 28. God will bring beautiful things out of all that he is doing. So however you're struggling with this and however ugly either this truth seems or the way you're living right now is, you're like, it's ugly, it's a mess, it's a wreck. God says, I make beautiful things out of even the most ugly when they're conformed to my will. So this is hopeful. People are like, oh, it's a straitjacket. No, it's hope. There's also something else we need to pick up on this. It's God's will. And God cares about you. That's why he gives us this teaching. But he also cares about everyone else. And he cares about everyone else who might be harmed by you if you continue the way you are. Paul says, See that no no one transgress and wrong his brother or sister in this matter because the Lord is an avenger. Let's just put aside the comic book movie and think of Jesus Christ the Lord God Almighty. The Bible says he makes his appearance make hills melt like wax. He makes mighty warriors weep with fear. His eyes are like fire. His voice is like the rushings of many waters. He holds the keys of life and death. Do you want to pick a fight with him? No, you do not. You do not. And what Paul says here is when you wrong a brother or sister in this matter, you are doing that. And you may know that person and you might be in a relationship with them or you might just be bumping into them in the middle of the day or they might be aware that you're doing this. They might not be aware of it. They might be on a screen. You do not want to pick a fight with Jesus over how you treat others sexually. It is the will of God for you and for them. We need to be serious about this. It's the will of God, firstly. And secondly, which really does flow from this, it is urgent. It is urgent. So Paul refers to God's will seven times. And then just in case that wasn't enough, he adds a few more of his own things as well. He's like, we ask and urge you, do so more and more. Hey, we told you beforehand. Hey, we're solemnly warning you and I'm doing it again right now. Doing God's will is not something that is, it's on the list, I'll get round to it. It can't be on the list and you'll get round to it. And that's doubly so when it's something as significant and important as sex. It can't be like one of these days, I, there are things in my life, I'm like, I, I really want to do that. I know even God's called me to do it. I'm, I'm not ready yet. I can't do it. Some of those things, that's okay because you can't do everything at once. But this is not that. This needs to be dealt with now, like right now. If you are struggling with and being defeated by sexual temptation, you need to deal with it today. 
Even if it's, it's a, it'll be a process, because remember, it's sanctification, it's a process. But it starts, it has a start point. Now, all sin is cancerous. All sin grows and destroys if we don't deal with it. There's something particularly powerful about sexual sin, uh, particularly powerful in a culture like ours that just idolizes it. Jesus said, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And because Jesus talks about sexual immorality in the same way as Paul, we can put whatever your sexual immorality struggle is in that category. And then he says this, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It's Jesus. You're like, I wonder what he might be talking about, eyes. and We know exactly what he's talking about. You're like, well, you seem to still have your eyes in your hands and most people here do. He is using the most powerful dramatic language he can to sell you how urgent this is. Urgent matters require immediate treatment. Yeah, water leaks through the ceiling. I've got to get around to that sometime. No, no, now. You need to repent of what you've been doing. Which means to say you need to acknowledge that it is wrong and turn away from it. You need to confess uh, to God. Primarily say, God, I've been doing, what I've been doing is wrong. Even if I thought it was right, I'm sorry. Please help me to live a new way. Please help me to see that this is how you want me to live. Confess to a trusted Christian friend. Do not worry about feeling awkward. The stakes are too high for that. Lord, I never quite got around to telling anyone and so my life fell apart, but it would have been so awkward for a moment or two. No, no, this is too important. Confess our sins to one another. God's faithful to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So God acts urgently on this as well. And we need, people, we need to ask that kind of person or people, if we're in a group of people, to pray for us and to help us and to ask us how we are and to share strategies and things with us. And then we need to make whatever changes are necessary to help you avoid doing it anymore. Um, there's an article, uh, which again is linked in the notes uh, by a guy called John Piper, and he, uh, he uses the uh, acronym ANTHEM uh, to describe his kind of strategies uh, for dealing with this. Let me just, I'm just going to hit them and you, just so that you might be like, oh yeah, I do want to read more about that. He says, A, avoid as much as possible and reasonable the sights and situations that arouse unfitting desire. He's totally right. Uh, I think there's several reasons why Deb and I don't watch many box sets. One of them is most of them have people getting naked in them. And I don't care how good the series is. If that's happening, I don't want to be near it. I'm not scared. I just don't want to be near it. Avoid. So many people are like, oh yeah, I was watching this, watching that. You're like, were you? How does that help you? Avoid. Say no to every lustful thought. Piper says within five seconds. It's like there is a countdown about how you're going to respond to it. You need to respond urgently. Otherwise it will have you. Turn to turn the mind forcefully towards Christ as a superior satisfaction. That's absolutely true. Hold the promises and the pleasure of Christ firmly in your mind until it pushes the other images out. Enjoy a superior satisfaction. You hear what he's saying with all these things. He's like, there is better for you than that. And then move into a useful activity away from idleness and other vulnerable behaviours. You could be doing good instead. So it is God's will. It is urgent. It is a process. 
Again, so, I was just so encouraged when Karen brought that word. I was like, yes, that's exactly what I'm talking about today. This journey. God is a God of breakthrough. And there are moments in our salvation like that. We go from not being a Christian to being a Christian in an instant. And, you know, all the credit of, of, of Jesus is given to us in that moment. You become a child of God in a moment. You don't graduate to it. It just happens when you believe in him. And, you know, we pray for people to be miraculously healed and, and it, you know, they're like this and then they're like that. Or we pray for a job or a situation to change, to shift, and suddenly it happens. And we're like, yes, this is amazing. Isn't it wonderful how God works that way? I love when God works that way. It is wonderful. It's not the only way he works. And sanctification is that other way. It lasts for as long as we live and follow Jesus. You will always be being sanctified. That's why Paul says, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. He's saying that they're doing well, but they're not perfect. And then he's saying there's more to go. There's more to get. And that's so, so important to realise that. I think particularly when you're dealing with something like sexual sin, it's, it's preloaded. You know, it's, it's, I, I bought this and I got this with it. Sexual sin preloaded with guilt and shame. And all it takes is for you to do it and then they arrive. And when that happens, you can be like, I've failed, I've failed again, I will always fail. That, that's, that's the trick it plays. It's the devil's lie because Jesus is changing us from one degree of glory to another. That's the truth. And so we need to know that this is a process. We mourn, oh God, I've done it again, I'm so sorry. But we don't give up hope because our Father is patient and kind Amazingly so. And he helps us put one foot in front of the other foot, in front of the other foot. Sometimes we fall over and sometimes we stop and sometimes we run backwards, but he gets hold of us and again and again and again. A long obedience in the same direction, as someone once said. And then we look back after a period of time and we're like, wow, I've actually come quite a long way. You have, because God's at work. God's working with you. This is much less glamorous than the suddenly moments. I think it's all the more valuable because of that. Final thing, and then we will finish. It is impossible and possible. Paul describes being led by your sinful desires as non-Christian living. It's really interesting if you're a Christian. I just can't help it. Paul says, well, you're living like someone who doesn't know God. Verse five, those who do not know God. He does that not only because it's God who defines right and wrong, who defines what sexual immorality is, but because we can only obey him through his power at work in us. That's why those who don't know God don't live that way because they can't. And even if they get some manner of kind of control, they will be idolizing something else in order to do that. Whereas a Christian only worships God. And that's why this whole section is about holiness. He says, I want you to be holy. I want you to be holy. I want you to be holy. Hey, remember, God has given you his Holy Spirit. The presence and power of God within us. He tells us to control, his, to control our bodies. Well, how do you do that? Galatians 5, it's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. God works these things in us. You cannot do this by yourself. You need to cry out to God. You need to ask him again and again. And then I have cried out. Don't be like, and therefore, if I've asked God to help, I will feel different and my hands may even move without my own control. It doesn't work like that. The power of God, the way it works in this is that when you choose to do the right thing, you are able to do it. 
And so you can close your eyes or turn your head away. You can turn the screen off. You can. You can leave the room or the club or the flat. You can end the relationship. You can do whatever you need to do to escape the situation. Even if up until this point, it's been entirely your own fault. You've done this all by yourself. And you're like, I have made a massive mess here. Jesus says, you ask me, I will get you out in a moment. There'll be power for you to get out. Just don't try it in your own strength. This is the will of God for your life. Now, you can say, I know the will of God for my life. It's very simple. It's that you become more like Jesus as he makes the whole world his. Every Christian has been made holy, set apart by God's choice of them and his filling of them by his Holy Spirit. Like my pen, but infinitely more valuable. And therefore, every Christian can grow in holiness, in Christ-likeness. Each of us is a tent in which God dwells by his Holy Spirit. And he wants to increase and increase and expand and take over the whole place. Even something as complicated and powerful as sex must submit to the Lordship of Jesus. And by the power of the Holy Spirit in the daily decisions of sanctification, it will do. And that's why having warned them so urgently and so insistently and so repeatedly in this short passage, Paul prays for the Thessalonians at the end of this letter with huge confidence. He's writing to a very small group of people in a city that's all about sex and they've been Christians for not very long and he's like, I'm totally confident that this will happen in your life. And I am totally confident that this will happen in your life. You're like, you haven't seen my life? No, I know, because the power of God is at work. Why, if you're able to stand, why don't you stand? I'm just going to pray for you how Paul prays at the end of this letter. But with this confidence in mind, if you want this to be your life, you're like, I do want this to be the will of God for my life. Why don't you just ask him, you might want to close your eyes, whatever you do that will focus your attention on him. I want to pray this for you. As you say, I want to live this way. I'm saying this to you. Now, now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body, all of you, be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. I want to say that to you again. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. You put your challenge in front of you, whatever it is, put it in front of you. Say, will I, can I change? Will God sanctify me in this? I'm telling you, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. If you want that to be true for your life, it's a long journey, but you can start it now by saying, amen. Amen.